Take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 5. As you turn there, um, I'd like to ask a request, a prayer request, and uh, we've, we've uh, maybe hinted at this a couple times in the last few weeks, but this week, uh, Friday and Saturday, uh, the elders of our church are going to be going on a retreat. And the goal of that retreat is to get away and to spend time with the Word together, pray together, and to seek the Lord and His vision and direction for our church. And so I would just ask, if you would, uh, pray for us. Pray for us as we prepare to go and pray for us Friday and Saturday as we're there. Our, our hope is that this time together, uh, to, to not only with one another, but with the Lord in prayer and Word, uh, it, that it will be something that strengthens our whole congregation. And so um, I would ask uh, for your prayers as we get away this week. Uh, Genesis chapter 5. We're going to be uh, in the whole chapter this morning, but let's start by just reading the first five verses. And uh, we'll start with that. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man... He made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. So as we've been in Genesis and looking at what uh, the Word of God says in this portion of Scripture, we've seen the creation of the world. God, the Almighty Creator, Eternal God, created a perfect world. He placed His image bearers in it, put them in paradise where they could know Him, experience Him, love Him, obey Him, know the life flourishing that He intended for them, gave them purpose is his image bearers, but we've also seen how man rejected God's purpose for him, how they decided to take matters into their own hands and decide for themselves what was right and wrong. And we've seen the result of that. We've seen what God pronounced uh, in terms of cursing the whole world, the fallen humanity that we now know and experience, this fallen and cursed world. We've also seen in chapter 4 some of the fallout of this post-Genesis 3 world. We've seen the contrast between, on the one hand, the kind of bleak picture of Cain and his line, humanity continuing to take matters into their own hands, embracing the fall of the work. But then we've also seen this glimmer of hope in, the, in Seth and his line, and humanity that, that goes against uh, the current of the fall and the curse that we see in the world. And as we come to chapter 5, it is to Seth and his line that Moses draws our attention. And specifically, what we see in chapter 5 are generations, multiple people, over the course of hundreds and hundreds of years, who are having to deal with a cursed world. They are in the thick of it. All that they know. They're in this cursed world. And particularly, we see with the line of Seth, from Adam, a line that offers us some hope 
that there is, uh, there is something else besides just the unrighteousness of the world. There is something else besides just uh, going with the current of the curse and going with the current of this cursed world. But what we find in Genesis chapter 6, and then we saw already in the line of Cain, is that really we have this, this long line of Seth, but it's very narrow. And around Seth and his line, around these people that, that offer some hope and offer a different picture than what we see, is a world that is filled with unrighteousness. They are living in the thick of a cursed world. They are li living in the thick of a, a massive... Uh, spread of, of unrighteousness. They're living with the reality of death. Uh, they're living with the reality of, of difficulty and toil and pain. And so what Seth and his line had to ask and answer is how do we make it? As those who are trying to be God followers, how do we make it in this cursed world? That was what Seth and his line had to ask. That's what Israel, the first readers of Genesis, had to ask. As they were in the wilderness, as they were facing the Canaanites, as they were facing all these other pagan religions, they had to ask, how do we make it as God followers, surrounded by a very fallen world, surrounded by a cursed world? And this is the question that God followers today have to ask too. How, how can we make it? But we're surrounded by unrighteousness. We're surrounded by people rejecting God. We're facing it. It, it, it opposes us. It comes against us. Uh, but not only that, we're faced with the reality of death as part of the curse. It's an inevitable thing that, that is waiting around the corner for any of us at any moment. Not only that, just the difficulty, the pain, the, the challenge, the aches, and all the things that come with the toil of laboring in this cursed world. How do we make it? as God followers in this curse of the world. Well, as we look at what God does in Seth's life, I believe that the message that God wants us to see in this chapter today is that we can make it. We can. We can make it. But not on our own. Only in God is there a way for us to make it in this cursed we can make it in a cursed world, and I see three things we must do if we are to make it in this cursed world. First one is to trust in the God who gives us purpose. If we are to make it in a cursed world, we must first trust in the God who gives us purpose. As Moses begins this genealogy that starts with Adam and ultimately ends with Noah, he begins all the way at creation. He begins at the moment when God gave Adam and Eve their purpose. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. So here in these first two verses, Moses is recapping something that happened in chapter 1. So in chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, you see not only the creation of man, but also God giving purpose to man and woman as, his, uh, as, as the pinnacle of his creation. We see in, in uh, chapter 5 here, verses 1 and 2, uh, several things that Moses highlights to remind us of how humanity started out, the purpose that God gave them. What sets humanity apart from all the rest of creation 
is what he says at the end of verse 1. He made him, meaning humans, in the likeness of God. What sets us apart as humans is that we are made in the image of God. We are made with the purpose of reflecting who God is. This is something, as he continues on in verse 2, that's true of male and female. Both are equally, equally image bearers, have equal honor and dignity as those who are meant to reflect God. They're equal in their purpose. And he not only uh, gave them this purpose, but then he blessed them. And what we see is he blessed them so that they would then multiply and multiply image bearers, that they would be fruitful and that they would, there would be flourishing of the human species. So he starts this way. He, he draws our attention back to what happened in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Uh, but by the time we come to the beginning of chapter 5, a lot has happened. A lot has happened since that moment. I mean, man and woman were given this purpose, but then they failed. They failed in their purpose to reflect God. They rejected God. God sent them out of the garden. There's all these consequences that have happened. And we, we've seen already, there is depravity. There is all sorts of things that are not going according to plans, so we would say. So it kind of demands that we ask the question, has, has the image of God been lost? Were Adam and Eve the last to reflect God? Well, the answer is no. The image of God has not been lost from humanity. Adam and Eve were not the last ones to reflect God. And we see that in the following verses, in verses 3 through 5. Now, as we, as we look at verses 3 through 5, what we see here is a, a pattern is established in verses 3 through 5 that then continues multiple times throughout the rest of this uh, genealogy that we have in chapter 5. And the pattern is basically this. Uh, when A, insert name here, when A had lived X number of years, he fathered B. So, uh, A lived after he fathered B, Y number of years, and then had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of A were Z number of years, and he died. So there's this pattern that begins with Adam here in verses 3 through 5. And it's repeated multiple times throughout this chapter. But there are three times in this repeated pattern where there are breaks from the pattern. And those points are key moments of emphasis that are meant to grab our attention and teach us something. And so as we consider that pattern, the first break in the pattern actually happens right here with Adam and Seth. We would expect that verse 3 uh, would say this. At the end of verse 3, we would expect it to say, he fathered a son, or excuse me, he fathered Seth. According to the pattern, that's what we would expect. He fathered Seth. But that's not what it says. In verse 3, it says, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. So this break in the pattern, again, is to get our attention, it's to show us something, and as Moses begins this genealogy by pointing back to God, establishing a purpose for humanity as his image bears, in his likeness, and then here breaks the pattern and says that Adam has a sunset in his image, in his likeness, what Moses is showing us is that the image of God continues. That the image of God was not lost when Adam and Eve fell. It's something that continues. All the way to us today, 
We all have inherited the honor and dignity that comes with being image bearers. We are all, as humans, created in the image of God. Our lives have value and honor and dignity because God made us in his likeness. We've inherited the image of God. Unfortunately, that's not all that we've inherited from our great-great-grandparents, Adam and Eve. Notice how verse 5 ends. And he died. Something has gone wrong. You know, death is such a normal part of our existence. It's easy for us to read through a, a, a list like this with, where that phrase is repeated and just not even notice it because it's so normal. But remember, that was not the original design. This is a consequence of Adam and Eve sinning against God, rebelling against him. It's a fulfillment of uh, chapter 3 in verse 19. When, when God is responding to man who has just sinned against him, he says in verse 19, By the sweat of your face you shall be bred till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So here at the end of this, uh, this section about Adam, we see, and he died. He returns to dust. He receives a consequence for his sin. He dies. And from Adam, while we inherit the image of God, the honor and dignity that comes with being image bearers, we also inherit that which caused his death, a sin nature. And we inherit the consequence of sin, death to us. Uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 5, verse 12. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and he died, right? And so death spread to all men, because all sin. So the image of God was not lost, but because of sin, the image of God has been tarnished. Because remember, we are meant to reflect God. And sin is literally the opposite of reflecting God. So we are accurately, if we're sinning, we are not accurately <laughs> reflecting who God is. We're not really showing what God is like. And you might remember whenever we talk about the image of God, uh, as scripture uh, unfolds, we see that there's two aspects of the image of God. On the one hand, there's an honor and a dignity, and that never changes. That's uh, something that was established, imprinted by God in humanity. And that's something that is continued despite the fall, despite sin. But we also see that being God's image bearers comes with a purpose of intentionally reflecting God. A responsibility to reflect who God is like. And when we sin, we tarnish the image of God. Because when we sin, we are doing the opposite of reflecting what God is like. And so that's why... The first thing that we need to do, if we're going to make it in a cursed world, the first thing that we need to do 
is actually not something that we do at all. The first thing we need to do is to trust in who God is and what he has done and can continue to do for us. Trust in the God who gives us purpose. If you're in Romans 5, uh, go ahead and move a couple chapters forward to Romans chapter 8. The good news is that the God who gave us purpose, who we rejected, the God who gave us the purpose that we failed to fulfill, the God who gave us that purpose is also the God who can restore us to our purpose. Look at Romans 8, verses 28 to 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The God who gave us the purpose of reflecting his image is the God who can restore us to reflecting his image. He can restore us to our purpose but only in Christ. Because Jesus, fully God and fully man, is the only human being who has ever perfectly reflected God. He is, as Colossians says, the image of the invisible God. He did what no human being else could ever do. He perfectly reflected God. And if we trust in Him, by faith in Him, we can have His record of perfect image bearing, his record of perfect reflecting applied to us. Even though we fail as image bearers, even though we fail to reflect God, if we trust in Jesus, we can have his record applied to us. And the reason why we can have that applied to us is because also this Jesus died and took the, and he died, the returning to dust penalty that we deserve for our sin. As a substitute. So that even though we deserve to die, we deserve to be condemned because of our rejection of God and our failure to meet our purpose. If we trust in Jesus, we can be forgiven. We can have the slate wiped clean of all the ways that we have sinned and rejected this God. And by faith in Jesus, not by anything we do, but by faith in him, we can have his record of perfect reflecting perfect image-bearing applied to us, so that God looks at us and he sees a perfect reflection. Human who has perfectly fulfilled his purpose. Not because we've done it, but because we trusted in Jesus who did it for us. And that's something that is available to you and me today. We can be forgiven. We can be made right with God. We can have Jesus' record applied to us if we turn from sin and we trust in Jesus. It's a free gift that he offers to us. He offers to you today that you can have. You can have forgiveness and you can have a right relationship with God. And not only that, what we see in Romans 8 is that not only does God just give us Jesus' record, but he also, in Christ, transforms us into image bearers. He makes us actually reflectors of his image. He transforms us gradually, grace upon grace, one degree of glory to another. 
In Christ, we can know our purpose. In Christ, we can be restored to our purpose of reflecting God. So as we continue on, the first thing we need to understand, if we're going to make it in this cursed world, that we must trust in the God who gave, up, gave us purpose and who can restore us to, uh, to our purpose. As we continue on, we're going to see this pattern that I said was established with Adam. We're going to see this pattern continue uh, generation after generation through the line from Adam all the way down to Noah. And as we read this, I want you to pay attention to a couple of things. First of all, note the, that part of this pattern that we see repeated over and over and over is this phrase, and had other sons and daughters. Now, this is God's grace in effect. Because God, who blessed humanity and told them to be fruitful and multiplying, is continuing to bless them. He's continuing to give them the grace of letting the human race uh, multiply and continue. On the other hand, though, notice this re repeated refrain, and he died. Laced throughout this genealogy is a reminder of the consequence of sin, a reminder of the curse upon humanity. But I also, again, want you to notice when we come to a break in the pattern, because these moments where there are a break in the pattern are meant to get our attention and teach us something. So with that, let's read uh, together, starting in verse 6, and uh, pay attention to those things that I just mentioned as we continue on. Verse 6. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God. After he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. We have a major break in the pattern when we get to Enoch. It should get our attention. What is happening here? Well, this leads us to our second point. If we're going to make it in this cursed world... First, we have to trust in the God who gives us purpose. But second, we need to walk with the God who rewards those who seek him. Walk with the God who rewards those who seek him. So here we are going along in Genesis chapter 5. We have this pattern. It's kind of this monotonous pattern over and over and over and over. And then out of nowhere, we get this new, new word about Enoch. He walked with God. Now, you might remember if, if you were with us last week that there was an Enoch in Cain's line as well. We're in Seth's line here, but in Cain's line there was an Enoch. But this is a different Enoch. Enoch was Cain's son. It was the one that Cain named a city after. Uh, so it's a different Enoch. But it is interesting to note the, uh, 
contrast between the Enoch of Seth's line and his contemporary from the line of Cain. So Enoch here is the seventh from Adam in the line of Seth. The seventh from Adam in the line of Cain was Lamech, the guy who boasted to his two wives about killing a young man for wounding him. So whereas Lamech is this picture of rejecting God's design, cheapening the value of human life, unrighteousness, Enoch, the seventh from Adam on Seth's side, is a picture of walking with God. So walking with God, what does it mean to walk with God? Well, I really like what Alan Ross says about this. He says, the expression became a common description of the life of fellowship and obedience with the Lord. As if to say that walking with the Lord was a step above mere living. There's living, and then there's walking with God. Walking with God, there, there's four aspects of walking with God that we need to understand. First, walking with God begins with relationship. Walking with God begins with relationship. Walking with God, the text says. He walks with God. It's a picture of close fellowship. In Scripture, there are different times when someone is described as walking before the Lord, walking in front of or in the presence of. But this is this is more intimate than that. It's walking with the Lord. It's not just walking in front of the Lord. It's walking in step with God. Enoch walked with God. It's a picture of intimacy, of relationship, of closeness. And what we need to understand is walking with God is not first and foremost about behavior. It's not about doing the right thing first and foremost. It begins with relationship, knowing God, being close to God, having fellowship with Him. Now, that's not to say that behavior is irrelevant, because the second thing we need to understand about walking with God is walking with God leads to righteousness. Walking with God leads to righteousness. Again, it's not just rule following them. It's righteousness that's the overflow of relationship with God. When you walk with God and you get close to Him, you see His ways. You see how He deals with you. And it's attractive to you. You fall in love with this God and you want to be like Him. Not only that, the more you walk with this God and see how He is and you get to know Him, the more you love Him. The more you want to please Him. And the more it pains you think about dishonoring him or doing something that he wouldn't want you to do. And so righteousness becomes something that's not a drudgery or a burden, but a joy and a delight as you fall in love with this God with whom you're walking. Walking with God begins with relationship. Walking with God leads to righteousness. But what Enoch's example shows us also is that walking with God is not Number three is walking with God involves a rub. Uh, turn with me to the New Testament book of Jude, second to last book of the Bible. So the Old Testament really doesn't say a whole lot about Enoch. So it's surprising how often he comes up in the New Testament. But one of the two places that he comes up in the New Testament is in the book of Jude. 
Now, Jude, we're kind of diving into the middle here. As Jude is writing, he is writing both to rebuke false teachers and to encourage faithful Christians who are dealing with the reality of these, these false teachers. And what he wants to tell these faithful Christians that he's writing to, Jude, uh, the half-brother of Jesus, who's writing this letter, he wants to encourage them by saying, you're not the first ones to have to deal with this. You're not the first righteous people who have had to deal with opposition, who have had to deal with uh, opponents. And so he shows them examples of how others have had to deal with this. And he shows them specifically the example of Enoch. Look at verses 14 and 15 of Jude. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So what we see here that Enoch not only was walking with God, walking in relationship, walking in righteousness, he was also speaking out against the ungodliness and unrighteousness that was around him. He was speaking out against uh, what, what he saw were that was a contrast with what God was doing in him. Enoch knew the rub. He knew that for all people there is difficulty in living in a cursed world, but the added difficulty of walking with God in a cursed world is not only are you dealing with unrighteousness and death and the difficulty that everyone deals with, you're also going against the currents of a wicked world and the unrighteous. Enoch knew the rub. And if you walk with God in this cursed world, you'll know the rub too. You'll know the opposition, the feeling of an uphill climb, the feeling of going against the current. But the good news is that walking with God, while there is a rub, while it is not easy, number four, walking with God ends in reward. So there's, there's two things that Genesis tells us about Enoch. But it doesn't tell us about anyone else. First, he walked with God. And then second, in verse 24, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Enoch, again, if we're following the pattern, we would expect that phrase that we saw repeated at this point six times, and he died, and he died, and he died. But right here, we don't see that. We see, and he was not, for God took him. Enoch didn't die. God took him. He was apparently taken directly to heaven without experiencing physical death, just like uh, the prophet Elijah would be taken up uh, later on. So Enoch experienced, the, uh, as part of the, the rewarding life of walking with God, he experienced being spared from the sting of death against this backdrop of death that we see permeating the list in Genesis 5, something that's plaguing all of humanity at this point, even the good line of Seth, we see that as the, the ESV story of Redemption Bible says, God does and he can halt death's march whenever he pleases. God does and he can halt death's march whenever he pleases. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. We've read this passage already in our worship service. It's the other place in the New Testament where the, uh, 
New Testament refers to Enoch. And again, very little in the Old Testament about Enoch, yet he makes it into the Hall of Faith here in Hebrews chapter 11, right after his spiritual forefather, Abel. Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Enoch pleased God. But that is not a statement about his performance. It's a statement about his faith. He trusted in God. He believed that God exists, and he believed that he rewards those who seek him. And that faith is demonstrated in the fact that he walked with God. Because he believed that it was worth it, because he believed that God rewards those who seek him, he walked with God. He was faithful even when he was surrounded by people who were unrighteous, who were not faithful to God. He knew, he believed that there was reward in walking with God, and that transformed the way he walked through this fallen world. Walking with God ends in reward. And so Enoch got not only the reward of rich fellowship with God and knowing that reward, he also received uh, a reward of being spared the sting of death. And the good news for the Christian is that we can walk with God in Christ. We can walk with God in Christ. Look at it, if you would, at Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. If we're going to make it in this cursed world, we need to walk with the God who rewards those who seek Him. And in Christ, we can. Paul writes in Colossians 2, verses 6 through 7, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. What's amazing about this phrase, so walk in Him, now, I mentioned there's there's walking before God, and then there's walking with God. It's more intimate. Well, it gets even closer when we're talking about Christ. We walk in Him. If you have received Christ, so walk in Him. So, if you have received Him, if you know this God, are you walking in Him? Are you walking with this God? Are you experiencing Intimacy of relationship with this God. Close fellowship with Him. Are you seeing the fruit of righteousness that overflows out of that relationship? If you are, then I'm sure you know the road. I'm sure you know how hard it can be to try and be faithful to the Lord in this world. I'm sure you know and I'm sure you experience all the time bumping up against Genesis 3 ness Whether that's 
opposition directly, or whether that's just difficulty in trying to be faithful to God, difficulty in trying to make disciples, a feeling that this enduring and this persevering that I'm trying to do as I walk with God is just taxing and it's tiring and it feels like I'm a hamster in a wheel and I'm not getting anywhere and it doesn't feel like it's going. It feels like there's no value in this, even as I try and try and try to endure and persevere and continue to stay faithful and walk with this God. Well, let me remind you that walking with God, faithfulness to Christ, ends in reward. And even if it feels like you're not being seen, even if it feels like you're not getting anything out of your faithfulness, your steadfastness, your walking with the Lord, your Father in heaven sees, and he will reward you. Now, I'm not saying that you're not going to die. <laughs> we're not guaranteed that we're going to be like Enoch and Elijah, taken up and not seeing death. But uh, it is encouraging to hear what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, and 52, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. So, whether we are asleep or awake, when Christ comes, those in Christ will be spared the sting of death. We may, we may die, but in that day, we will hear the words, in victory, O death, where is your sting? Walking with God ends in reward. So as we continue on in chapter 5, as we start at verse 25 and, and go through the rest of the chapter, we see this pattern uh, picked back up. So again, watch for a break in the pattern. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground the Lord has cursed. This one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We have our third and final break from the pattern here with Lamech and Noah, and it leads us to our, our last point. If we're going to make it the cursed world, First, we have to trust in the God who gives us purpose. Second, we have to walk with the God who rewards those who seek him. But third, we have to hope in the God who will give us rest. Hope in the God who will give us rest. So here for the first time in Genesis 5, someone speaks. We have all these names, all these people, hundreds of years, but this is the first time we actually have someone recorded as speaking. And what's interesting, so this, again, his name is Lamech, but this is a different Lamech than Cain's Lamech. That Lamech, it's interesting though, was also the first one to speak in Cain's line. But what a contrast from what Lamech says about boasting in his unrighteousness. 
versus what this Lamech, Seth's Lamech, says. Hoping for relief from the curse. So, Lamech names his son. This is where, as we see this break in the, in the genealogy, well, the break comes as Lamech speaks, and as he speaks, he's naming his son. He named him Noah, which means rest. And he says, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech knew the rub. He knew the difficulty of living in a cursed world. He knew the reality of what God had promised in chapter 3 and verse 17 when he said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. He knew the curse. He knew that painful toil that we all experience. This aspect of the curse is what brings difficulty to our work. It's what makes providing for ourselves challenging. It's this thing that has made what was meant to be a blessing by God work. Being godlike in that being little creators, reflecting the big C creator. This gift of work that God gave us has been corrupted by the fall, and so now it's associated with difficulty, pain, obstacles, challenges, a cursed ground. Lamech knew that. He knew the curse. He knew the rub. He knew the difficulty of life in this post-Genesis 3 world, and so he sees in Noah hope. He's longing for relief from the curse. Rest from his painful toil. It seems as though Lamech remembered the promise that God had made back in chapter 3 and verse 15 about an offspring of the woman who would come, who would reverse the curse. Lamech is hoping, waiting for the one who would come and reverse the curse. Of course, it wouldn't be Noah who was the offspring who would bring this final relief. Noah is not the one who would reverse the curse. It would be through Noah that the ultimate offspring would come who would reverse the curse. But it is interesting that Noah and his story, which we'll get into in the coming weeks, it does foreshadow what the ultimate offspring will do. Because in Noah, we see not a not a reversal of, of a new or not a reversal of the curse, but we do see a kind of a picture of a new creation. As Noah and his family exit the ark, they're exiting into a world like they've never seen before. Humanity is basically starting over with this one family. And so there's kind of a picture here of a, of a new creation, a fresh start. Of course, what we find very quickly in the story of Noah is that this is not a new creation. This is the same cursed world that was there before the flood. But it's a picture of the new creation, the reversal of the curse that the ultimate offspring of the woman will bring. The offspring who has already come, Jesus Christ. The one who was promised, the one who will bring us relief from the curse. And the good news is not only that that offspring has come, that he has been born, that Jesus has come, but that he is coming again. And when he comes, he will make all things new. And once and for all, he will bring us relief from our painful toil of our hands. We see uh, a picture of this in Revelation chapter 14, and 
Go ahead and turn there with me. Revelation 14 is the last place we'll turn. In Revelation 14, we see both the fate of the ungodly and the reward for those who are saved. Those who walk with God who have been saved by His grace. Revelation 14, starting in verse 11. And the smoke of their torment, so he's, he's starting out with the, the fate of the ungodly. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds are remembered. We see this, this, this painful toil that Lamech experienced, this longing for rest, that remains for those who continue ungodliness. That remains for those who continue to resist God, who continue to reject His purpose, who continue to take matters into their own hands. They never experience rest. But for those who trust in Jesus, for those who by God's grace receive His gift of eternal life, of transformed hearts, they will experience in Christ rest, relief, the curse. Relief from the pain and the toil. Rest from their labors in Christ. We have in Christ a greater hope than Lamech had. Lamech had hope and it was founded in God's word but as he looked and placed his hope in his son, he was placing his hope in someone that could not deliver on what he was hoping for. But in Christ we know the one who can deliver on what God has promised. Who is the offspring who will crush the head of the serpent. Who is the one who will once and for all reverse the curse and bring us rest and relief from this cursed world that we experience. This cursed world that we are swimming in day after day after day. We can't make it in this cursed world without this hope. We can't make it on our own. But in Christ, we can. With this hope, with this hope of the one who will make all things new, who will bring it into the curse, who will reverse it, who will make all things new, we can endure. We can make it in this life. We can continue to be faithful to Christ. We can continue to bear witness to what Jesus has done for us. We can continue to make disciples. We can continue to suffer for the name of Christ. Because we have this hope. That one day we will experience rest in the arms of Jesus forever. So how do we make it? How do we make it in this cursed world? Trust in the God who gives us purpose. Walk with the God who rewards those who seek him. And hope in the God who will give us purpose. In Christ, we can do this.
In Christ, we can make it. Generations ago, people dealing and wrestling with the same things that we're wrestling with now. Or as we see their example, Lord, I pray that we would follow their faith. That we would trust in you. That we would walk with you. Knowing, Lord, that we don't have what it takes in and of ourselves. We need you. And so, Lord, I pray that in Christ we would trust in you, depend on you, walk with you. And Lord, that you would give us the grace and the strength in Christ to make it through this world. To make you look great in this cursed world. Until the day that we rest in the arms of Jesus for all eternity. Lord, fuel our faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together.